Well, good Monday morning. Welcome to Connect, the California MBA's weekly podcast featuring one-on-one interviews with movers and shakers in the mortgage industry. I'm Dustin Hobbs, communications director here at the California MBA. We've got a great guest today. Excited to uh, dive into the conversation with him and find out uh, what his thoughts are in the industry right now. Uh, he's uh, a, uh, one of the powerhouses on the legal side of the industry, so we're, I'm really curious to see uh, what his thoughts are on some of the big cases going on right now, some of the legal trends in the industry, and we'll get into that here in just a moment. But first, let's thank our sponsors over at Incelerate. Incelerate, the leading mortgage lead management CRM and engagement platform that helps lenders close more loans by increasing efficiency gains across sales, marketing, operations, and management, has recently announced the first of its kind mobile app. The groundbreaking mobile app delivers full lead management, lead distribution, click-to-call, inbound call routing, first call automation, and two-way compliant text messaging, and provides access to critical loan information without having to use a laptop or log into your LOS system. It also empowers loan officers by intelligently distributing leads, managing pipelines, prioritizing your day, automating best practices, and, and personalizing the borrower's journey, all from the mobile app. So for more information or to catch a demo, Visit Incelerate.com, or you can call the number listed here in the description below. Okay, let's jump into the conversation. I'm excited to welcome in Michael Pfeiffer. Michael Pfeiffer is the uh, is an attorney with Kirby McGuinn. He's also the general counsel at the California MBA and has been for a long time. And he's also a longtime supporter of the, uh, the industry and of the California MBA in particular. And uh, Michael has been instrumental in uh, guiding our legal issues committee for years. And uh, even kind of starting and getting our uh, legal issues and, and uh, regulatory compliance conference off the ground years ago. And so I'm really excited to uh, uh, talk to uh, Michael and find out his background and what his thoughts are on the industry today. Good morning, Dustin. It's, it's great to be here. Thank you for, for this opportunity. Yeah, yeah, of course. It's a long time coming, I think. Um, so let's, uh, let's dive right in. Why don't you start uh, with your background, Michael, for those that don't know you well. I know that there's a lot of folks, particularly on the uh, in the legal side of the business, that have known you for a long time. But for those that maybe don't know you well, let's you know find out more about your background. What led you to the uh, mortgage side of the, uh, uh, the legal uh, industry? Kind of a, a long story. A lot of people that I have met in the industry did not have this as their first career choice. Uh, they ended up here after going to a number of other things. And I I, I kind of personally feel like I mean, even though I didn't. I didn't know this in advance. I think I was sort of destined to be here. I, uh, I, uh, I knew I wanted to be an attorney when I was 12 years old, and uh, everything that I did after that, in, in terms of my schooling and everything else, took me to that goal. What inspired? I'm curious. What inspired you to be an attorney at 12? I, I was interested in politics. I thought at some point in time I would go into politics, and uh, people said, "Well, you know, you have to be an attorney to go into politics," and so. Like okay, well, I'll I'll do that, and I and I, uh, but I was always interested in real estate, and uh, when I was at college, I, you know, my I grew up in a working class family, and my uh, my parents were, my father was a plumber, and then he was involved in the plumbers union, and uh, he got me jobs in the summertime working in construction, so I, I did a lot of uh, real you know construction on apartment buildings and houses, and and uh, I expanded my uh, uh, verbal vocabulary uh, through that experience and uh, knew then that I wanted to be a lawyer and maybe learn some other words uh, but uh, it was it was great and then um, when I was in college uh, I had the opportunity to uh, you know I was gonna I'm still following a political career but uh, had the opportunity to go to uh, London for a year 
at the London School of Economics and just became much more interested in, in the financial side of things. And uh, when I came back to, to America and, and uh, went to law school, I, I ended up at, at uh, Cornell University up in upstate New York. And the uh, uh, one of the professors there thought I had an aptitude in real estate. I, I, I really wasn't I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I thought I would go into antitrust and the international lingo that convinced him that uh, you know <laughs> your future yeah. was <laughs> yeah, I guess. And uh, it was you know I thought it would be you know international law or something, but because I had spent the time in in Europe. But um, he he made me a research assistant uh, for uh, his his the book that he was working on. And back then, I mean, this was. You know, I'm old. This was a while ago. This was in the uh, this was in the early 1970s, 1973 era, and uh, <clears throat> I uh, the, uh, the the work that we did was, you know, we were, some of the new things that were going on right then, then were planned unit developments. I mean, nobody, you know, that was a that was a revolutionary concept to have homeowners associations and things like that, and uh, that was a brand new concept. And uh, so we did a lot of research in that, and he wrote a lot of articles on that. And he later became the dean of the law school. But that was a, I just loved doing that work. And, uh, but I still went ahead and got a degree. My degree from Cornell is it, with specialization in international uh, legal affairs. Um, but, uh, you know, when you, when you, once you get out of law school, then the real world hits. And, uh, you know, I got a job in Los Angeles. I was recruited out of the law school for a job in Los Angeles. And, I had wanted, I had wanted, and I trust. So I went to work for a big firm in, in Mid Wilshire, and we represented a lot of, you know, big oil companies, Exxon and Mobil, and you know, a bunch of companies uh, on antitrust cases. And uh, but I, I found that totally boring, <laughs> and <clears throat> ended up uh, saying, you know, I, I had a family. I had a daughter that was born in the last year of law school, and uh, I wanted to. I didn't want to live in Los Angeles. Um, and so we moved to Orange County. I, I managed to snag a job with a law firm there that uh, that was representing a lot of developers. And uh, and again, this was 1975. Orange County was just beginning to grow. We uh, we represented all these developers who were building these high-rise buildings, and it was really kind of a gold rush time because uh, the opportunity was there, the money was there, um, and um, so we represented them all in, in litigation and. and Issues. I also represented a couple of title companies, so I got familiar with that. So my real estate career just seemed like I was headed for that direction. Um, the uh, as time went on, um, I was with that firm until about 1985, and then uh, went with a large firm that out of Beverly Hills that did nothing but represent banks. So did a lot of commercial bank loan workouts. So. Uh, was right uh, in the thick of it in the, uh, uh, the I guess the original savings and loan crisis. Yeah, say the SNL crisis had to be right around then. Yeah, we represented a lot of savings and loans, and uh, and we also represented what was then called the uh, FISLIC, uh Federal Savings and Loan Insurance Corporation, and uh, and when they started, they ultimately uh, and the FDIC got involved as well when things started to fall apart. So we represented the FDIC, we represented FISLIC, we ended up representing an outfit called uh, the Resolution Trust Corporation, which uh, you know helped resolve some of these things and was one of the pioneers of the securitization 
uh, concept that you could take a bunch of these bad loans, throw them together and put them into a, uh, a pool of loans and sell them to investors. And so we were very much involved in that. I, I spent a lot of time at the FDIC's offices in Irvine and uh, you know, we would, they would take over the banks and we would then you know, work out their loans. Um, and uh, so I did that for about, um, I don't know, eight, eight, eight years or something. And, uh, and then in uh, 1994, um, went into partnership with a, with a fellow in, uh, in Newport Beach that had a uh, bankruptcy and foreclosure firm and it specialized in representing mortgage banks. And my job was to handle the complex litigation that spun out from those cases. Hmm. So did a lot of mortgage fraud work and uh, you know, recover, recovery of fraud loans and, and real estate uh, finance disputes and that sort of thing, but got very interested in loan repurchases hmm. and uh, wrote an article in 1995 on loan repurchases and some of the defenses that could be raised. And at that point in time, people, were, you know, people really weren't thinking about loan repurchases and that wasn't a big deal. But uh, I, I spent a lot of time doing researching those and, and writing that article, and that opened the doors to a lot of things. Um, uh, I eventually split with that partner in 1997, opened my own law firm, and uh, <clears throat> said, you know, if I'm going to do repurchase work, I might as well go talk to some of the big uh, lenders. So I basically just figured out who to talk to at Countrywide, went up to their offices in Calabasas and said, you know, hey, I... I I know about this stuff. I'd like to do some fraud recovery work, maybe some repurchase work. And they talked to me and said, well, you know, you're, you're cheap enough. You're small. Uh, you know, we can take advantage of you. <laughs> so <laughs> it was one of those mutual sort of things. I said, well, that'd be, that'd be great. Take advantage of me. Just give me some cases and, and go. And so I did that, expanded my firm. Eventually, I think I had, I don't know, eight or nine attorneys there. And um, we did a lot of repurchase work for Countrywide and for a number of other uh, mortgage companies and uh, managed to get a position. Uh, and again, one of these things where I went to one of the uh, quality assurance conferences for the MBA, I think this was in 1999, and uh, had a meeting of the, of the committee there, the quality assurance committee, and there was four people in the room. I said, well, you know, it's kind of falling apart, you know, uh, who wants to be the chairman? Everybody looked around. No, nobody wanted to be the chairman of the committee. I said, "Well, this is like an opportunity to me." I remember it very clearly. I was up in San Francisco, and uh, I said, "I'll do it. I'll be the chair of the committee." So we formed this little committee called the Fraud and Ethics Subcommittee, and uh, and uh, and what we did was we 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 would meet. I started off just using my own phone and paying for it, but we would have these conference calls uh, once a month. We had some great people on there. You know, we had. Uh, Jim Croft from uh, Mary, and uh, we had some people from the FDI, uh, not the FDIC, from Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and some other people. And you know, we, people were interested in that. They were interested in stopping fraud, and uh, and so we, you know, we would talk about ways to do that. And we said, you know, one of the main things we'd love to do is have a universal uh, mortgage loan officer identifier. Yeah. Something we thought was really critical and essential, and. Uh, and we didn't we didn't know about the I mean the NMLS wasn't in existence at that point in time none of that was there but, th but these are things that grew out of that committee a number of the people who were involved in that went on uh, you know one of the one of the guys Bill Bill Jacobs Bill Jacobson he was with Mary he went on to be head of the CSBS and uh, some of the ideas that we had in that committee ultimately became the uh, the uh, framework for the NMLS so it, it, it was a worthwhile activity. 
And I was the chair of that committee until about 2003. And, uh, and uh, during that time, I got to, I met Susan Malazzo and uh, just, she became the, uh, she was taking over, I think, as executive director of CMBA at that point in time. And I went to her and I said, you know, uh, I'd like to, the, uh, the Mortgage Quality Assurance Committee for CMBA uh, hasn't really functioned uh, for a, a year or two. It was kind of quiet. And I said, I, I'd be, I'd, again, it's one of those opportunities where, you know, nobody else wanted to do it. And so I just said, well. Sure, world where that's not a, you know, a priority. Yeah, it wasn't a big thing. I mean, it was, yeah. you know, this was at a time when, you know, uh, it just, it, it just was fortuitous. And uh, so, uh, we had just finished uh, the mortgage fraud uh, committee for the MBA. We had just finished publishing a book. We, put, you know, edited a book that we put together. Everybody wrote for it, but it was called "Combating Fraud and Unethical Practices in Real Estate." So we published that through the MBA. When that was over with, uh, well, I've done enough here for the MBA, and and so that's when I approached Susan and I asked her about it, and she said, "Yeah, sure. You know, if you want to do this, great." So, um, uh, and so I took that on. And we, we modeled it after the Fraud and Ethics Committee of the MBA. And uh, we would have, you know, monthly calls and that sort of thing. Some of the same people were involved in it. And it was started off just, you know, three or four people. Uh, but it expanded and, uh, and grew. And uh, I presented it to the board of directors of CMBA, and, and they liked it. Uh, they thought it was a great idea. And uh, so much so that they said, well, we'd like you to be a director. And we'd like you to... We'd like you to expand it and make it go someplace. I said, okay, well, I'll take that chance. I mean, that's a great opportunity for me. So chaired that committee for a number of years, and we, we grew it and expanded it, and uh, it's, it's, I think it's turned into a great success oh, yeah. um, over the years. So uh, it was one of those things where I just, you know, meanwhile, I was continuing with my firm and continuing to do repurchase work and all other kinds of things. And, but as the regulatory environment continue to in, in, um, become more complex and, and people began to look at regulations, sort of began to look at that a little bit more carefully as well. And through my work with MQAC, began to uh, um, try to understand a little bit about more about those regulations and started ending up, people would call me and say, well, you know, can you help us with an enforcement action that we have? You know, we've got the, we've got the, uh, at that point in time, it was just the, the department, uh, Department of Corporations are asking us about our uh, license, but, uh, but, but, you know, as that developed, obviously we had the, the, the crisis of 2008 and, uh, and all of the repurchase issues and everything else. I, I just, I felt like I was like Forrest Gump. Like I was just, it's, I was, I just was in the right place at the right time for a lot of these things. Um, and uh, so we, uh, you know, continue to represent a lot of people and uh, on these kinds of issues. Um, and the more you spend time doing things, obviously, the more you learn about it and the more you begin to understand it and, and the more effective you become and the more you effective you become and successful, then it's like, well, I like this. You know, it's, I'm having fun. It's successful. So um, that's a long story, but uh, it's kind of a winding path. But uh, uh, at, at a point in time, I was on the board of directors for three terms. Uh, for California MBA and a term off after that. And uh, I said to Susan, I said, well, you know, you don't have a general counsel. I'll do that. Uh, are you interested in that? And uh, and she made it very clear. She said, uh, I said, you know, she said, huh, you don't expect to be paid anything, do you? 
said, well, <laughs> I said, maybe, maybe from time to time, but uh, uh, no, I don't expect anything. I'll it's just do it. It's your to the industry, Michael. That's right. And uh, she's very clear. I mean, she's, she's terrific. Um, and so uh, and I said, no, I'm just grateful for the opportunity to do that. So I did that. And, uh, and that was, I don't know, about nine years ago, eight or nine years ago, and, uh, and uh, have continued on since then. So um, I closed my own office at the end of 2017. And uh, um, I just, you know, didn't want to do all the work to maintain it and just became of counsel with Kirby and McGuinn on January 1st, 2018, and uh, have continued to work in, in that environment. It's been, it's been a lot of fun, and I've really enjoyed all my years working with CMBA and with you. And I remember when you first started, I joked about you on your birthday that I think I knew you since you were 12. You were just, you know, you were just a young man. I think you were, it felt, it felt like you were just barely shaving at that point in time. Seriously, it feels like it now too, yeah. And uh, now, you know, now you're a father and, you know, you're a prominent person in, in CMBA. And uh, it, it, it's funny how, you know, if you just stick with something long enough, then eventually uh, uh, it begins to bear fruit. So that's kind of been the story of my life. Yeah. Well, that's, that's really interesting. Well, and I, you know, I feel the same way about the industry too. I mean, it's, you know, one of those things where it's always dynamic, always changing. And so it's always been interesting to me. It's, uh, you know, you mentioned that, you know, some other aspects of the law were not quite as interesting. I think, you know, real estate and, and mortgage lending, it's, it's always interesting. There's always something changing. The end goal is still the same, but you know, how we get there seems to always change from year to year. Uh, I want to I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I, I wanted to say something in that regard. One of the things that attracted me to it as a uh, as a litigator was this is all very complex stuff, and there's a million ways in which you can go wrong. I thought, what a perfect environment for a lawyer. <laughs> what a perfect environment for a litigator. There's not going to be a lot of work there. So, it's 100% job security. 100% job security. Uh, that's hilarious. So on the, to that point then, so what was what would you say, looking back at this point, what was your biggest challenge or maybe your greatest victory as an attorney in the industry? Boy, you know, I, uh, I, I, don't, I think the biggest challenge uh, is basically getting on top of the, the, the law in this area. It has grown so quickly and changed so radically over the last, uh, you know, few decades. Uh, when I first started, I mean, they were, you know, the loan applications had to be filled out by hand in person. Uh, they didn't have, uh, if they had fax machines, they were, they were, you know, fairly new. Uh, people would fax their rate sheets over to people. Uh, when fraud was committed, it was committed by, you know, doing a little bit of whiteout over a thing and then, you know, typing in something over it. Uh, that was, you know, that was the, that was the technology at that point in time. You got to remember uh, when I really first started being heavily involved with California MBA, it was about 1994. That was just when uh, personal computers were, personal computers were around, but there was, the internet was brand new. The internet was brand new. And, uh, and, and, you know, just not before, not much before that people were, you know, Personal, the extent of computing power was, you know, a pong game at the Marie calendars. I mean, that was, you know, that was basically, that was basically it. The technology has radically changed everything, sped everything up, and uh, and 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 permitted 
um, the kind of complications that we have because it's you know the computers keep track of everything and uh, and allow for a lot more accountability than what was present in those days. Yeah. The biggest challenge has been is dealing with the technology and learning the uh, learning the keeping up with all the changes that have occurred as a result of it. Yeah, no kidding. Well, and you know, one of the things that I know has always been a challenge is, our, especially in our state, is you know the notion of letting the dust settle after a new law or a new regulation passes doesn't seem to be the uh, the norm anymore. It seems to be we're not even going to wait for the dust. But just throw the next one on top of that, and the next one on top of that, and then eventually we'll figure out if it works or not. Uh, so to that point, you know, what would you say at this point? What's the state of things when it comes to the environment and uh, uh, the legal side of the industry? And you know, maybe what's the, to your uh, point of view, the most interesting legal trend right now? I think the most interesting legal trend is what you just described, which is the uh, piling on of uh, everybody's efforts to uh, add regulations and uh, make it quote make a difference. Um, you know. Believe it or not, we're still there are still effects from the 2008 financial crisis, massive effects from that. That changed, that radically changed the the landscape. And uh, and believe it or not, I, I'm still actually handling lawsuits arising out of loans originated in connection with this, going all the way back to 2006. Um, that are repurchase cases that are still going on, still going on after this length of time. Wow. Um, but what the biggest trend right now is, uh, even though uh, you know the problems have largely largely been worked through, and uh, and that sort of thing, I think politicians realized that there was a great political benefit from being a champion of consumer rights, and so they seem to climb over each other to try to uh, to try to be that champion, and uh, and the problem with that is not not that not the desire to help consumers because i think that's a worthwhile goal and that's a worthwhile that's always a worthwhile goal because we all benefit once that's done the problem is that people who, who they go into it their zeal exceeds their knowledge of the impact of what they're doing and they uh this is a very very complicated industry and uh it's become infinitely more complex in this last 10 years as a result of uh, the dodd frank act at the federal level and the uh, homeowners bill of rights at the state level in California, and uh, and also the standing up of the CFPB, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, or Bureau of Consumer Financial Protection, whichever regime you want. Depends on the year. <laughs> Whatever year that is. Um, but uh, as a result of that, the uh, the regulation control in the industry has become, in my opinion, more complex even than you know. Remember when the, they were flying the space shuttle? They kept track of every single tile in the space shuttle. Every single square inch of that vehicle and every component of it was kept track of. That's exactly what's happening in the mortgage industry today. Every every step of the way, from the first initial contact to the uh, to the last uh, payoff of a loan, is uh, governed by regulations and is supervised and uh, and and the people who are involved in the process are closely examined by a wide array of regulators. Uh, if you're doing business nationally, you've got the CFPB, you've got every single state regulator. And uh, and in those states, there are different approaches to protecting consumers. Uh, that's the, to me, that's the most interesting trend because it is creating, it has created um, tremendous pressure on the participants in the industry 
to uh, either comply with that or get out. And uh, it has winnowed out uh, a lot of thousands of potential participants in the industry with, in my opinion, an anti-competitive effect because you've either got to ante up, you've either got to ante up with massive technology investment or forget about it. Um, and yeah, so- the uh, is really high now, I agree. Yeah, and, and it's going to continue to be that way, in my opinion. Uh, the, uh, the technology is, is absolutely necessary. You, can't, you cannot, in my opinion, be in compliance right now with all the rules, rules and regulations you have to comply with without a, a massive technology investment. And, and I'd say that's the, you know, that's the most interesting legal trend because what's happening is a lot of the regulations and uh, the, the compliance requirements with those regulations are being uh, hardwired, if you will, into the systems. And, uh, and that's a blessing because you can expedite it. But I think I gave a couple of comments a couple of years ago at the Legal Issues Conference that I think were widely misinterpreted. There's a downside to it. And the downside is when you have it hardwired into the systems like that, and by that I mean it's put into the you know, it's baked into the software. Uh, when you have that done, people become more removed from the, the rationale behind the regulations and more removed from an understanding of why they're there. And, uh, and that, that creates almost a uh, slavish uh, worship of the technology and belief that the technology is going to solve the problems and it's going to make everything right. Well, of course it is to a certain degree, but uh, there are but there are limits to it. And uh, um, you know, the output of the computer systems is directly related to the input. And yeah. unless you have uh, the control of that, and it also it also requires some awareness of what's really going on. Uh, you know, so the technology has largely replaced common sense. And I can't tell you how many times I and how many conversations I have with clients who tell me, well, you know, the, the, the LOS has produced, you know, this result or, you know, this compliance vendor that we're using says this. And uh, but we don't know why. And we don't know, you know, is this the right answer? Because we're being written up for it, for it by one of the regulators. Like, well, um, you're, you're in violation. You're in violation of the regulation. Well, how could that be? How could that be? We, we spent all this money on vendors to have this done. Well, you know, it's just not as simple as your system seems to think it is. So well, that's, I mean, it's, it's only as good as the person inputting the, the information and, and setting the rules. That's right. It's the old, you know, the old phrase, garbage in, garbage out. And, and unless, unless you, and, and those rules are not, I mean, it's axiomatic to recognize those rules are not always as clear as the people who write them think they are. And then you have an overlay on it. Then you have the gloss of the courts who get involved and uh, they want to have their say. They all want to be champions of the consumer as well, uh, at the appellate court levels particularly, where they, they think, well, you know, we, we the great, great wisdom of, you know, our great wisdom as appellate justices, we think that we need to, we need to find and recognize duties that uh, nobody ever saw before, that have always been there, They've always been there, but we, but nobody else has ever Never seen them until until now. When when we when we're discovering them, we found them, and uh, and you now have to live by those those rules. 
So, are you suggesting that every judge is uh, is not a perfect uh, objective arbiter of the law and and uh, may be influenced in part by their own personal biases and and uh, political leanings? Yeah, it happens. I've yeah. heard it. I've heard that. It, I've heard that it happens. Yeah, I would imagine. Well, speaking of you know uh, specific legal cases, I know that uh, as general counsel, one of your uh, uh, one of your main uh, um, responsibilities there is to sort of sift through many requests we get for uh, amicus, uh, uh, to be an amicus on a uh, case that one of our uh, members uh, is dealing with. And I know we've got a big one uh, right now, Sheen versus Wells Fargo. Why don't you uh, uh, sort of explain, you know, sort of the status of that and where we're at with that? Yeah, well, that case, uh, I'm not going to bore everybody with the details of it, but the essence of that case is uh, whether or not the, uh, uh, it's, it's before the California Supreme Court, and uh, the lower court basically held, uh, well, let me sort of go back a little bit. For almost a decade now, there's been a fight among the courts of appeal over whether or not um, lenders and servicers owe a duty of due care, which is basically a negligence standard, a, a, a tort standard, a duty of due care to borrowers who are involved in the uh, loss mitigation or loan modification process. And, and that arises out of a lot of the horror stories when people are trying to get loan modifications out of the arising out of the 2008 financial crisis where they would apply for a loan and then, you know, it would be their application or for a modification and their application would be transferred around with people and they would keep asking them for things and the people would supply them and the borrowers would supply them. But then another person would get assigned and there wasn't a single point of contact and their papers would get lost and foreclosures would occur. So there was a lot of disasters as a result of that that uh, crisis. And those gave rise to a lot of the, uh, uh, the legislation and regulation that we have. They gave rise to Dodd-Frank. They gave rise to a lot of the modifications to the Truth in Lending Act and, and the Real Estate Settlement Procedures Act that, that the, the CFPB made in, in creating the servicing rule in 2014, where they said, look, if you've got somebody that is in a loss mitigation situation and they, they apply for a loan modification, you have to respond to them within X number of days. You have to treat their application a certain way. You have to provide them with a certain point of contact. So there's been a lot of detail that has been supplied by the law in response to that. Well, meanwhile, uh, during that time period, the courts began to uh, uh, you know, decide these issues uh, you know, at the judicial level. And uh, there was a couple of decisions that you know, people would say, well, you know, the, lend the lenders and servicers owe the, uh, uh, the borrower a duty of due care, which is kind of a radical concept because that's never been the case. Going all the way back it to the... So uh, nice. It sounds so, you know, in a sense, uh, uh, um, consumer friendly. But to your point, I mean, you know, sorry to interrupt, but I mean, it, it's one of those things where it on the surface sounds benign, but, you know. On the surface, it sounds benign. And... You'd think that was the case, but it, the problem is that 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 duty, to the extent that you know, well, first of all, there's a whole series of cases that go all the way back to even the early in the mid '80s. Back in the mid '80s, and a lot of people aren't aware of this, there's this whole movement to create a a, a lender liability tort to create a duty of due care, and there was a series, and this was at the commercial level, and there was a series of cases that came down including cases by the California Supreme Court, in which they ultimately said, no, there's no duty of due care uh, unless you have a special relationship with uh, between the borrower and the lender. The lender's role 
And this was codified in a case called Nymark. The lender's role is basically that of a debtor, you know, the debtor-creditor relationship. And the lender does not owe a duty of due care as long as they stay within that normal debtor-creditor relationship. If they vary from that or they get involved in the borrower in some other way, uh, such as some kind of a joint venture or something like that, well, then that creates a different situation. But for all these years, we've been living under that. But after the 2008 financial crisis, what happened was some of these courts decided to get a little bit more venturesome. They perhaps had forgotten about the all the litigation back in the mid 80s or you know, weren't on the bench then. And they felt it necessary to begin to start addressing these issues. So a couple of courts said, yep, there's a duty of care. And uh, we're gonna impose that on the servicer and uh, uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to allow the borrower to go to trial on that, and uh, we're going to put that burden of, of, of care on the service. That all sounds great. Some other courts said, no, we don't think that's a great idea because uh, this is an area governed by contract law. It's an area that should be governed by statute and regulation, and so it's a mistake to do that. Um, and that's been going on for about a decade. Uh, all rising out of the 2008 financial crisis. The courts have been going back and forth, and there have been dozens and dozens of decisions, both back and forth. Some courts say there is a duty, other courts say there isn't a duty. Well, finally, so then this this is enter the Sheen case. This is the, the case of Sheen versus Bank of America. And in the Sheen case, the borrower had a junior lien, wasn't his uh, first lien on his property, wasn't his purchase money mortgage or anything like that. It was a voluntary, um, you know, essentially, uh, second that he put on the property for, for various reasons. And uh, through a series of events, he feels that uh, that he wasn't given, uh, his, his loan modification application was not taken in, into consideration carefully enough, and that the lender foreclosed without giving him adequate notice uh, of, of that that was gonna happen, and has raised this issue that there is a duty of, of care. Well, the, the Court of Appeal, uh, the Intermediate Court of Appeal, uh, ruled that no, there is no such duty. And they went through a pretty detailed analysis of that. And uh, he petitioned to the California Supreme Court, and they finally have agreed to take up this issue of whether or not there is a duty of due care that's owed by servicers and lenders uh, in the loan modification loss mitigation context. And uh, that has now been fully briefed. We had an opportunity to file an amicus brief on that for, for the California MBA. We joined with the uh, we actually, the, the national MBA joined with us, and uh, we also joined with a couple of other trade associations, California Mortgage Association, United Trustees Association. We filed a joint brief uh, on behalf of Wells Fargo in that case, arguing that there, there should not be a duty of uh, due care imposed, in part because of the, uh, for a lot of reasons, uh, not only historical legal precedent, but for a lot of public policy reasons that that this is an area that has been heavily regulated, that trying to put it in the hands of, uh, uh, of juries and judges to try to uh, navigate their way through the complex regulations that govern this process is likely to create uh, inconsistent results and is likely to create more confusion and more difficulty. We have, we have uh, regulators who are uh, heavily financed. The CFPB has hundreds of millions of dollars of financing, and uh, they have extensive regulations, and they audit people uh, to the nth degree in this servicing area. And if you make a mistake, you're going to be penalized. They're not going to miss it. They're going to catch it. And in fact, there's duties of self-reporting. And uh, under the uh, this AB 1864, which the governor has just signed, 
uh, into law. They've established the California Consumer Financial Protection Law, which adds even more uh, responsibilities and beefs up significantly uh, what, what was it used to be called the Department of Corporations. Then it became the Department of Business Oversight. And now it's the Department of Financial Protection and Innovation. And uh, they have enhanced. You see it. You you see a pattern here. Uh, <clears throat> there, they have vast powers, and they have they have powers now under this to. And I think they may have had them before, but now it's very clear. It's explicit. They have powers to enforce all of the regulations uh, that the CFPB has power to enforce. And I mean, a lot of people refer to them as the new response from the state to create sort of a, a mini CFPB out here. I was just going to say that, yes, exactly, to create a mini CFPB. They were not satisfied that the CFPB was aggressive enough under the Trump administration. And so now in California, they've decided that they're going to make the California uh, Department of Financial Protection and Innovation the uh, the new uh, CFPB. Most, most mortgage lenders uh, want to do business in California. It's a tremendous market, and uh, it's something that's hard to, uh, hard, hard to resist. Uh, but if you come here, uh, they are going to expect of you uh, some very serious uh, accountability for compliance with our consumer protection laws. And uh, and this state has uh, is there's it's a re great temptation to the legislators to try to do something new for consumers every uh, every month, every week, every day, every hour. I think some of them lie awake at night thinking how they can uh, can do this. And um, if you talk to our legislative advocates, I mean, there are thousands of bills introduced every year, and there are dozens that have to do with the financial services industry. Um, well, I remember now, just like even is a, regulation a good thing? prior to the financial crisis, I mean, you know, our uh, legislative, our advocates would deal with, you know, maybe, you know, a couple of bills a year that were really focused on the industry. And now it's, you know, a dozen or maybe 20 bills a year that in some way, shape or form right. have an and, impact on the industry. Right, and they're not minor bills, they're major bills. Yeah. Uh, and so they, they are putting a gloss on on uh, on everything. So I kind of got off the Sheen case, but that, but, but that it just shows you, everybody wants to participate in this process. Everybody wants to be the champion of the consumer. And that's fine, I get that. And I think it's in everyone's best interest that 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 consumers' rights be, uh, be uh, very carefully protected and watched over. But because of all the layering and because of the complexity of the things, you have to be really careful before you just launch into it and sell some bill that sounds great and makes a lot of political uh, hay, but can devastate and confuse everybody that's involved. And what happens is, and I know this for a fact, is that a lot of people who participate in the California market just price that in to their uh, to their products in California. If you're gonna if you're gonna if you're if, if you're gonna be a lender in California, you're gonna charge more for your loans uh, if you can, uh, in subtle ways, uh, whether it's in the form of the interest rate or whatever. California borrowers uh, gonna pay for that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it and it, as I say, it also discourages competition. Because, because in order to comply with all of that regulation, you, it's a very high standard. And so a lot, of, a lot of California businesses, a lot of California mortgage companies have been driven out of the business. They can't participate in California. They've moved out of California. They've gone to other states 
where uh, the environment is is more receptive to what they're doing. And you know, some people say, well, you know, good riddance. We don't need people like that. Well, yeah, maybe, but uh, competition is always a good thing. And the less competition you have, uh, the less California consumers uh, benefit. The more they're harmed. So it's not a it's not a simple issue. It'll be interesting to see how the California Supreme Court comes out on this issue because if they impose a duty of due care, that's gonna that could dramatically impact the uh, the uh, non-judicial foreclosure system in California. It could cause uh, that basically California to become a de facto judicial foreclosure system, which yeah. would delay the uh, the ability of lenders to uh, realize on their collateral in the event of a genuine uh, default and somebody who really truly can't pay or won't pay and uh and that makes it again uh, people will price that into their loans uh if they can't realize on their collateral lenders are not going to want to lend in california um and there will always be lenders in california don't get me wrong there'll always be people that lend here but it it gets complicated too for the private money lenders people who the moms and pops who invest in deeds and trusts deeds of trust if they have you know they don't they don't have the ability to uh comply with and they have the ability to comply, I suppose, but they don't have the technology or the technology investment to do these sort of things. So it narrows the pool of loans and credit that's available to borrowers. So that's yeah. kind of my soapbox, but those are some of the issues that we raised in our amicus brief. And we'll see how the California Supreme Court comes out on it. Either way, it's going to be a landmark decision. Yeah, no, and I think you're right, too, about the, uh, uh, you mentioned the non-judicial uh, system we have in California, technically, but I think to your point, we've sort of been inching that way, you know, towards a uh, more judicial system, and it's not good for anybody. Um, and so why don't you, uh, we're sort of uh, running a bit uh, short on time here, so I want to uh, I want to get uh, one piece of uh, practical advice you would have for a lender servicer right now to uh, sort of uh, uh, limit their liability, uh, whether it's through litigation or regulation or uh, even legislation. So what, what would be your one piece of practical advice? Listen to your lawyer. There's only one. There's only one. Listen to your lawyer. That's it. That's it. Listen to your lawyer. Well, that's practical in, in both ways there. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a simple answer, but it's, uh, you know, it's not just your lawyer. It's most, most companies have a team now of compliance professionals who, uh, um, and some of them don't include lawyers, but I mean, they're, they're essentially giving legal advice. They're giving compliance advice. Listen to the people who are trying to protect you because they really are trying to protect you. The days of ignoring them, the days of thinking, oh, well, I'll sweet talk the regulator uh, because I know them or, you know, because they would never come down against me. Those days are over with. Those days are over with. This is a highly regulated industry and it is, uh, and, the, and the regulations are deep and extensive and the uh, penalties for violating them are severe and they can they can mean the end of your company so uh if you're going to do business in california uh follow the regulations just make sure you get on top of them make sure you understand them make sure you have people that are helping you and, and that requires as i said the technological in, uh, investment but do that as well yeah no i think that's simple but practical advice to say the least um so as we close out here one uh, one last thing. One last thing. I want to tell you, as part of that, and this is a shameless promotion, support the California MBA. Really, I mean, I, I've been involved with the California MBA for 
you know, the, most of my career actually. And I've seen it evolve into the organization that it is today. And, uh, and it is very much involved in protecting the uh, consumers of the state, as well as the people, uh, the, the lenders and servicers and uh, the people who are supporting them. They're, they're, this, the California MBA is, in, is probably the key um, advocate in the industry for responsible lending and servicing. And um, they're, also, they're also the industry that can help sort out some of the craziness and some of the, uh, some of the insane ideas that come out and make them more rational. So that really the, the, the things that, are, and this is at the advocacy level, um, your, you know, people's support for that is vital. Uh, California MBA works closely with the national MBA. We have their resources at our disposal. And, uh, and, I, and I, I can just, I mean, I've known you, Dustin, and I know the kind of efforts that you make. We have committees that work on these issues. We have the Legal Issues Committee. We have the, the MCRAC Committee. We have a number of other committees that help try to develop ideas and solutions to these problems. I don't think there's any organization that a, that a uh, mortgage banking company could join that would, would, would benefit them more than being members of the California MBA. Well, thank you. Yeah, and you know, for everyone out there that is interested in joining, uh, October is membership month. So you can join right now and actually get a 15% uh, discount off your first year dues. So if you're interested in membership, by all means, go to uh, joincmba.com and you can get some more information about, uh, about how you can join there. And uh, Michael, again, hey, thank you for joining us today. It's been uh, it's been great to catch up and uh, sort of get to uh, talk some legal talk some legal stuff. I mean, my uh, my background, I had I, I uh, one of my majors in college was political science, and I, I was always fascinated with the constitutional law uh, uh, topics more than almost anything else. That the political philosophy was kind of boring to me, and to be honest, so it was more the practical you know uh, con law classes that were much more uh, interesting to me. So I always enjoyed chatting with you about. Uh, you know, legal the state of things in the legal business here feelings mutual Dustin thank you very much yeah yeah and hopefully we'll be able to see each other in person soon so uh, if you enjoyed the conversation if you enjoyed this uh, the back and forth and want to see another episode of connect make sure and uh, click the subscribe button here on our YouTube channel you can also catch us on uh, Spotify SoundCloud or Apple podcasts and we'll be back again next Monday morning for another episode of connect and we'll see you then